Uh, thank you for the invite and uh, for being here. Um, and just uh, before I forget, you know, Stephanie and I, this is kind of unusual, uh, Stephanie and I have a wedding to go to which uh, at 1.30, and it's in Camino, so it's about an hour from here, roughly. So uh, I've got to tell you that we'll be here for like 15 minutes or so after the sermon. Normally, we like to schmooze and stick around schmooze. You know what that is, kind of <laughs> hang around and talk. And, um, uh, but this time, we'll be here for about 15 minutes, and so don't be offended when we're leaving. There's an old Groucho Marx song. Remember this? Uh, Hello, I must be going. I came to... I came to say I cannot stay, I must be going. So I'm not going to sing it to you because that's the 11th plague of Egypt. If, if Moses had started with me singing, then the Passover would have turned out completely different. But, so let's, um, let's begin. We're going to talk about, uh, here, let me pray first. Lord, thank you for who you are. And Lord, thank you for uh, Lord, the, the oneness of the Bible, Lord. Thank you for the continuity of the Bible, that we can learn these things and understand to your glory how this is one book, uh, and you have revealed yourself through it. Uh, Lord, give me the, uh, just the right uh, phrasing and expression and uh, uh, to, to glorify you at, to the utmost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now let's begin. So I'm going to give you the, the Jewish origins of the Logos. Um, first, let me read it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were, were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the, dark, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And then we have verse 14, which is, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So those verses, you know, the, the pro, this prologue has a certain uh, rhythm to it, a certain cadence to it. Um, it's just, there's something very beautiful about it. I've got friends back east, Jewish friends, who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah and actually believe that I am Meshugana. You know the word Meshugana? They think I'm crazy. That's what they think. But this one verse in the New Testament, they really enjoy. There's something about it that draws people in, uh, in any language. Uh, but there's a certain confusion and misunderstanding about what John is talking about in his term that he uses, the word. We, we, in English, it's the word, a logos in the Greek. And John uses this term logos as a, as a title or a name. And the way John slides into his prologue, John seems to have assumed that the readers of the first century were familiar with the significance of that term. And so that's what we're going to be talking about, the Jewish origins of the logos. And uh, commentaries uh, through the centuries, and you know, you got to understand there's been a little bit of an overreaction. You know, the, the, the Christian church has kind of said, you know, we don't want the Gentiles to fall into legalism, and so we don't want that. And there was an overreaction, and after a few hundred years, anything that they concluded, anything that looks Jewish, just get rid of it. It's not good. So it was a swing of the pendulum, it was to the far extreme. <laughs> Really, the, uh, the whole origins, of course, of the Bible, Old and New Testament, were from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. So we've got to understand that. So here John is, uh, is uh, talking about this term, uh, the Logos, as if the people he was talking to were familiar with it. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I first heard the term Logos, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It sounded beautiful, but what does that mean? What, what, what does that mean exactly? Well, commentaries, many commentaries... Uh, say that John gets that term logos from Greek philosophy. And logos in Greek philosophy has uh, uh, two aspects to it, uh, reason and speech. 
So they figured that what John was talking about is the very idea of God, right? Um, uh, reason and the, the very expression of God's speech. And the problem is, is that John is not a, a, a Greek philosopher. John was this blue-collar Jewish guy, Jewish fisherman from the Galilee area in Israel, right? So he's, he, he didn't travel around in, in philosophical circles, right, to Greek philosophers. Now, it's, there's a little bit of a confusion here because, like, even when the Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin, uh, the people at the Sanhedrin uh, said that, actually, this is in Acts uh, chapter 4.13, they said, that they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated men and untrained men, and they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. There's a certain misunderstanding with this. You know, um, yeah, they, these guys did not have, that is, the apostles did not have PhDs, the equivalent of a PhD at the time, or a graduate level education, but don't think for a minute that they were like country bumpkins. Well, they were a little bit country bumpkins, but, but not in the sense of education. I want you to understand that um, uh, it, was say, it was written that if a, if a Jewish family has a boy, to, to begin teaching that boy when he's six years old the things of God, reading, writing, the Bible, if you wait until he's six, you've done a great disservice. You've done a great, it's like an abomination. You had to start him off when he was three years old. Now, one time, a few years ago, you ever see the movie, uh, Ken Burns, uh, the documentary, The Civil War? How many of you have seen The Civil War? Really good documentary. If you haven't seen it, go rent it from your library. It's an excellent documentary. And what the Ken Burns and the staff did was they chronicled the, the battles of the Civil War, but they did it through the eyes of these soldiers from the backwoods of Tennessee and the backwoods of New York and Pennsylvania and Carolina. They used their letters um, uh, to, they were writing back home. Uh, to their loved ones. And so they used their letters uh, to kind of um, uh, explain what was going on during these battles. So it was a really personal kind of look. And the thing that they noticed, that Ken Burns and the staff noticed, that how articulate uh, these backwoodsmen were. Their grammar was sophisticated. Their syntax was fantastic. I mean, they really, they wrote, they write better than like graduate level students now. And I'm not exaggerating. If you, if you go back and read those, some of those, really amazing. And they were homeschooled, essentially. So these apostles were the equivalent of that. They, they were, yeah, they were backwoodsmen, they were blue-collar, but they were educated in a way that, uh, that was pretty uh, sophisticated. So, now, so here's the problem, here's the question. What is the source of the apostles' usage of the term logos? If it's not based in Greek philosophy, it's not based in, in a mixture of Greek philosophy and Hebrew theology, um, some of you have heard the word, uh, the, the name Philos. So he was a Jewish guy who was into Greek philosophy. So he did Jewish theology and Greek philosophy, and he kind of combined the two. Some, uh, uh, some scholars think that that's where it comes from. It does not. To find the source of John's logos, we actually need to go no further than the Judaism that John grew up with, the Judaism in the land of Israel. Now, you know that, uh, the, 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 listen, the old expression is, uh, if there's two Jews in the room, there's three different opinions. Have you ever heard that before? It's like, it's like really, people ask me, is that true? I say yes and no. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> so, but there were different forms of Judaism, as you know, right? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, Herodians, outside of Judaism, Hellenistic type of Judaism. But, but the, the apostle's concept of the Logos shows that he was familiar with the Aramaic translation and interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Targum. Have any, any of you heard of the, the, the Targum or Targumim, Targum? All it is is a Targum, and Targum is singular, Targumim is plural. 
All it is is a paraphrased version of the Old Testament in Aramaic. So the Old Testament comes in Hebrew. Uh, most of it is written in Hebrew. Some of it is Aramaic, but most of it is Hebrew. And John wrote, or rather, uh, the, the rabbis, every synagogue uh, during John's time had these uh, amplified versions. The Targum was an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew, but it was amplified. It was, uh, it was paraphrased. Right? Some of you may even have an amplified b- version of your Bibles at home. Right? So, and you know how it is that you have a word and you have a bunch of words and then you have a bracket and the author is, or not the author, but the, uh, the translator is trying to help you out, expand the meaning, what the, what the original author meant. So this is what the Targum was like. Just to give you an example, so it was in, in Aramaic, it was, translating, it was translating the Hebrew into the Aramaic. And remember my people had spent, they had a stint in, uh, in uh, Babylon and they spoke uh, Aramaic in, Bab- in Babylonia, so that's where they got the Aramaic from. So... Now here, just to give you an idea, Isaiah 52.13, in the Hebrew, word for word, it would be translated, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. But in the Aramaic version, it says, Behold, my servant, the Messiah, shall act wisely. Now that word, the Messiah, does not appear in the original Hebrew, right? But these uh, translators, uh, these writers of the Targumim, they expanded it, they uh, essentially that was their um, opinion that the, Isaiah is writing about the Messiah, which he was. So that's why they put that in, just to give you an idea of what the Targum looks like. Now, when John the Apostle wrote his gospel in Greek, he needed a word to express the concept that the rabbis found revealed in the scripture, in the Old Testament, and that concept that the, rab- the rabbis called the Memra. And the only Greek term that fit the word Memra is the word Logos. And the word Memra is the word, word in Aramaic. Logos is the word for word in uh, Greek, and um, in Hebrew it's devar, it doesn't matter, but uh, in Hebrew it's devar. So now the targum, or the targumims, uh, these paraphrased versions in Aramaic used in the synagogue in John's day, they used the term memra about 600 times. And usually the word memra meant a word, just like I'm giving you words coming out of my mouth, just like that, kind of like that, right? And sometimes it's a group of words, like uh, what's, just like in English, we would say, well, what's the word for today? You know, you're not asking for one single word. What's the matter? Oh, today we're going to be working. We've got this project. We're really, uh, really cram- we have to cram it in. So a lot of times that's, what, that's all the word memra meant, right? But other times when the Bible said, for example, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, the prophet, saying, the Jewish sages, as seen in the Targumim, as seen in these Targums, took the meaning of the phrase, the word of the Lord, not as a word like I'm speaking to you right now, but as a distinct person. Uh, uh, it's because, look, they, 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 there's a few things they reason. First of all, if, if, how come it doesn't say God said to Samuel such and such, if, that's, if that word, memra, means just a word, you know, words coming from God. Uh, but instead, they saw it says, um, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, so they took that as a cue. So they took the, the word memra, the word that was coming to Samuel, not as the words, but as an angel or a messenger coming on behalf of God, speaking God's message to Samuel. And in this way, the word of the Lord was understood to be a distinct person. So now you could see what I'm, where this is going. right? And now where do they get that? If you step back a moment, uh, they reason this. Part of the reasoning was that God, whenever God spoke, God spoke everything into existence. So they took that to mean that, as a matter of fact, there's even a prayer, blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Everything was made by his word, 
And they took it to mean that God created everything through his powerful memra, uh, who existed in eternity distinct from God and as God. Okay, so now there's more to it than this. Um, for example, this memra uh, was identified to be God. And we could see this in the writings in Genesis 28, 20 to 21. It says that Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, I will return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. That's actually from Hebrew to English. Now when the, uh, the Targum translated this into Aramaic, it reads differently. Jacob promises instead that the Memra will be God for him if he protects him on his journey. Now remember that famous verse in Genesis 15, 6. This is Abraham is justified by faith, right? Abraham or he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Man, if that, that is so important. If, that, if you get nothing out of this message, just know early on in Genesis, we find that people are justified by faith. In other words, God considers them righteous before him when they believe in him. Now, so that's the verse in Hebrew. When the Memra translated that verse, uh, it says, Abraham believed in the member of the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or Abraham, another Targum says, Abraham believed in the name of the member of the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So you could see how the rabbis, these rabbis identified the member as God. Uh, Moses prays to the member, we find out. And again, like I said, the world was created through the member's instrumentality. So what's happening is that John's logos is not related to the Greek uh, philosophy, but it's uh, simply... Uh, from Jewish theology of that time. Now remember the, John, the context of John. He writes, But these things I've written to you, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, that's the purpose of John's book. So basically what he's doing is he's writing the book of John, the Gospel of John, saying if you believe in Jesus, continue to believe in him. And for those Gentiles and Jews who do not believe in Jesus, start believing in him. That's his whole point of writing his book. And John's gospel is kind of a track for those outside of the church, and in particular for Jewish people. And he emphasized the deity of the Messiah is emphasized and phrased in a way that would resonate with beliefs at the time, Jewish beliefs at the time of his writing. So that's why John said in the beginning was the word. You and I, when we first read that, we thought, what, what does exactly that mean? But 2,000 years ago, for a Jewish person uh, heard that, he would know exactly what John meant. He was talking about the memra. This was already an established kind of a philosophy, or not philosophy, is the wrong word, is theology. So there were different tensions over who Jesus was. Was he leading people astray? You know, there was these schisms that John uh, records, including schisms between his followers, John the Baptist followers, rather, and Jesus' followers. Remember that little schism that happened, and where John the Baptist said, uh, I must decrease and he must increase. So John is framing these sharp tensions from what they are. This is not Gentile believers in Jesus, because my people think that Gentile believers in Jesus came to my people, to the Jewish people, and talked to them about Jesus. That's not what was happening. What was happening was you had Jewish believers in Jesus versus Jewish unbelievers in Jesus. That was the tension. That was the, uh, the, uh, uh, the understanding or the, uh, the, the context of what was happening at that time. So what John was trying to show, or what he was showing, was that this Jew Jesus movement was a Jewish movement to which the synagogue responded 
by excommunicating the believers. Uh, now, excommunication means you cast out. So you cast out of the synagogue. But the whole point is, is that this belief, these beliefs that I'm talking about, that we believe in today, actually originated in the synagogue. It's not as if there was some alien foreign force coming into the synagogue. Instead, it was already in the synagogue, and now they're being pushed out. That, that's what was happening 2,000 years ago. So and you know how it is. In-family arguments can be more intense than uh, disagreements with outsiders. You know, you get that every Thanksgiving, right? You have family members start talking politics. I'm not going to mention any names. You bring up one name, you're going to get a lot of, a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, division, right? So uh, that's what was happening in that day. Now, here's, the, here's what I want to bring you back to. And we can't cover all this, but just to give you kind of a little bit of an outline. Uh, the rabbis derived six theological truths concerning the Memra 2,000 years ago plus. <clears throat> and the introduction of the Gospel of John, he refers to all six of these in one form or another. Now, here are six, uh, six attributes of the Memra, um, six theological truths. Uh, now, th the first one is, a is kind of a paradox. The rabbis never explained it or dealt with it. The rabbis asserted that the memra, the word, is distinct from God, the distinct person from God, and at the same time, they asserted the memra is God, right? Second, the rabbis said that God created all of creation through his memra. The third is, is that God was to redeem the whole world or save the world through his memra, through his word. I remember if John was writing in, in Aramaic, he would have used the word memra. He uses the word logos, Greek for memra. Fourth, God made himself visible through the memra. Number five is the memra is the means by which God signs his covenants. Something that we're not going to cover all these. So, And six, God reveals himself through the memra. Now, the rabbis tended to be unfocused at the time with some of these ideas, and what John did was he uh, crystallized it. He left in correct theology, and he left out the incorrect theology. But when, when so-called Christian logos interpretation began to spread, the rabbis began avoiding the term memra, and they censored it or downplayed it in their own writings. Uh, but again, the memra was the creative word of God. In their own understanding, he existed. The memra existed before creation, and God created everything through him. Uh, for example, Deuteronomy 20, uh, 33, 27 in the Targum says, the everlasting God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arm. The Targum recognizes, uh, and it says that these everlasting arms are the memra, and it says, through whom the world was created, man too, the Targum says, was created by the memra. And who has the power of creation to create out of nothing uh, in Judaism? Only, only God. So they were talking about God. They weren't talking about like a God or some kind of you know, uh, a created being. They're talking about God himself. So now what I want to do is uh, I want to read you from the Targum, just to give you an idea. I want to read you a little bit from the Targum. I mean, I don't mean in Aramaic. I'll read the English translation. Um, so to, just to give you an idea of what they understood the memory to be. <clears throat> so this is Genesis 1.1. We're all familiar. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That's what uh, the direct translation from, English, uh, from Hebrew to English. But here's the Targum says, from the beginning with wisdom, the memory of the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. So you can see the amplified, you know, the uh, kind of paraphrased version of it. I uh, feel to it that. And the earth was waste and unformed, desolate of man and beast, empty of plant cultivation and of trees. And darkness was spread over the face of the abyss. And the spirit of mercy from before the Lord was blowing over the surface of the water, uh, waters. And the memory of the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light according to the decree of his memory. 
and it was manifest before the Lord that the light was good, and the member of the Lord separated the light from the darkness. So you can see this goes on and on. Uh, whatever God, the Lord God created, the uh, firmament to separate the waters from the firmament of the waters that were above, and so it was according to his member. And the member of the Lord called the firmament heaven, etc., etc. It keeps going on. So you understand that, that these Jewish writers, this is before the time of the Messiah, before the time of Christ, they had some sense of, uh, of God's word. They had some sense of uh, plurality within God, the one God. Um, and again, had they been using, had John been using the word, uh, been writing in Aramaic, he would have used the word memra. So based upon the concept of the word memra as used in the scripture, the, the mindset of the Jewish person already had the framework to know what John was speaking about. So when they read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, they, they were from the synagogue, they were already familiar with this. Now, the second thing is, so the first thing was, is that God created through his memra. His memra is the creator. And the second thing is, is that, uh, that the memra is distinct from God, but he's God. Now, in all their writings, the rabbis never tried to explain this paradox. How is it possible for the memra to be distinct from God and yet be at the same time God? They taught, they, well, what they did was they taught that both statements were true, and they, didn't, they kind of left it there. And like the rabbis, John did the same thing in his gospel. He didn't try to explain the paradox at that point but simply stated it as being true. And later in his writings, John explained these seemingly contradictory <laughs> statements in, in, the, in terms of, uh, of the Trinity. Uh, he wrote about this one God uh, who's in three persons. Uh, the one he wrote about, the Memra, is distinct from God because he's not God the Father. And the Memra is not God the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, he is God in that he's the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. And only in terms of the triunity can these, this uh, rabbinic uh, paradox be explained. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, now this is important because some people believe that the apostles did not, had no conception of a trinity when they were preaching. That this was... Um, uh, this revelation came at the New Testament time, but not during the Old Testament. And we can see that that's not true. It may seem like it's true because the rabbis essentially censored, or they didn't censor it in the same, they didn't like burn all the books that talked about the memory or talked about any plurality within God. They didn't do that. But what they did was they downplayed what became official Judaism is from Pharisaical Judaism. That's what, that's what we've uh, came down, you know, has been passed down uh, to us, to Jewish people today. And what they did was they left out the parts with the memory and other parts of the, that they were not comfortable with that sounded like Jesus is the Messiah, so they left that out of their official Judaism. So you, so you have writings, like you could look up this, uh, this stuff I'm talking about, you could look it up in Jewish encyclopedias, but it's not part of official Judaism. Uh, it's rejected as that. Um, so uh, it would almost be like our apocrypha or something like that. It's not, it's not authoritative in that sense in the same way the other writings are. Okay, but, but think about it. 2,000 years ago, the concept of a one God and three persons, the concept of a plurality within the one God had to be in existence. Um, and the scripture is uh, Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 13, 14, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. You could tell in Matthew 26, 63 to 66, 
You could tell by the high priest's reaction to Jesus' claim of who he is at his trial that there must have been a belief in the plurality of God, some kind of plurality of God by my people. It says in Matthew uh, 26, 63, But Jesus was silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You've said so, like you said it yourself. But I tell you, now this is, Jesus says, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power in the coming on the clouds of heaven. Now this is a reference, an allusion to uh, Daniel chapter 7, right? Then, now look at the high priest's reaction. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has blasphemed, he's uttered blasphemy. Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And those around him said, he deserves death. Now look, think about it. If the Jewish people at that time had no concept of a plurality of the one God, of some kind of trinity, or something more than the Father alone is God, if, then, then the high priest wouldn't have had any idea what Jesus was speaking about by saying that he's going to be at the right hand of power. I mean, it would have been the equivalent of Jesus saying, the Cubs are going to win the World Series in 2016. What are the Cubs? Uh, win, I know, but what's the World Series? What is 2016? You know, the dating system hadn't even started yet. So we would have had no idea at all what, what Jesus was talking about. Instead, he accused Jesus of blasphemy, which means that he understood that the Son of Man is deity, is God, right? So uh, my people say... A lot of the rabbis say, listen, it's a closed door. The prayer in Hebrew, the proclamation, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, leaves no room for a trinity. But the problem is, is that the word that's used, the Echad, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, uh, actually opens, doesn't prove the trinity, but it opens the door for a plurality within the Godhead. Uh, for example, that word, uh, one, Echad, is used in, uh, in Genesis uh, a, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two will become one flesh Basarachat. you have two distinct persons and they're one flesh Basarachat. so it doesn't prove the trinity but it does open up the possibility okay now the fourth theological truth about the Memra and we didn't cover all six so I say it's the fourth it's just number four on the list so the fourth one is is that uh, it was the Memra was the means by which God became visible when he came uh, to, uh, to be seen, he came in the form of a mem the Memra, uh, as far as the rabbis, rab rabbinical teaching, right? So from time to time throughout the history of the Old Testament, God took up on, uh, took some kind of visible form. And when he did so, again, by, according to the rabbis, it was means, by means of his Memra, <coughs> by means of his word. Now in Christian theology, these visible manifestations are called theophanies. But the rabbis had a different term to describe the same exact thing. They call it the Shekinah, and you're all familiar with that. And a lot of times uh, the word glory is affiliated with that, Shekinah, glory of God. So the Shekinah, glory of God, whenever the invisible God made himself visible, and whenever the omnipresent God is localized, because God is everywhere, right? But when he's localized, this visible, localized presence was referred to as the Shekinah, or the Shekinah glory. And throughout... Old Testament history was primarily, it came, or the Memra, or the Shekinah glory, came primarily in three forms, in light, in fire, or in, in a cloud, or in some combination of all three. Sometimes uh, the fourth form is he came in the presence of the angel of the Lord, 
so we recall in, uh, with, uh, in, in Exodus, to Mo- showed up to Moses. So whenever one, with one, whenever one of these visible manifestations occurred, it was by the means of the memra, by the means of the word. So in John 1.14 it states, and the word became flesh, uh, the word, the logos, that was in, from the beginning, uh, who was in God, and now at a certain point in human history takes on visible form. However, he, uh, he came in visible flesh, but not in intangible light or fire or cloud. This time God's visible manifestation uh, came in tangible flesh by means of the incarnation. He became a human, a man of flesh and bone. And then the Gospel of John tells us that this manifestation dwelled among us. Now the Greek word for dwell literally means to tabernacle. So the text literally reads, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now as I mentioned, the Jewish people used the word Shekinah to describe this visible manifestation of God's presence. In writing his gospel, John uh, uh, did not use the regular Greek verb uh, dwell, but instead he used another word, skene, which means literally tabernacle. Now the connection between this is, is that uh, the, it's a bar, it seems like it's a borrowed word, borrowed from the Hebrew, because Shekinah and skene, uh, the Greeks did not have a hard uh, S sound. They didn't have a sh sound. They only have a, a s sh sound, right? So, uh, so it looks like the origin of this word comes from Exodus uh, chapter 40, where uh, the Shekinah glory in a form of a cloud took up the residency within the Holy of Holies, and essentially in the tabernacle, right? And the word uh, in Hebrew for tabernacle is mishkan, which comes from the same Hebrew word as Shekinah, right? So it kind of, he, he took up residency in the Holy of Holies. You could even say um, uh, that he tabernacled in his tabernacle. That's, that's kind of the, 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 the word connection. And so uh, for, se- for the next several centuries, uh, the Shekinah tabernacle with the people of Israel uh, until the Shekinah reluctantly departed in the book of Ezekiel in four stages. Remember that? Uh, but now the Shekinah comes back to Israel, to the temple specifically, not in the light or a fire, but in the person of the Messiah. And again, the Shekinah is not merely the presence of God, but it, it's the visible presence of God. And the Shekinah normally appears in the form of light, but the Messiah's physical body was hidden, uh, hid and uh, this light, and it was revealed one time during the uh, New Testament, and that's the Mount of Transfiguration, where the glory came shining out of his, his flesh was hiding it. Now the glory came shining out of his flesh. Um, so in the apostles saw it. Uh, so just as in rabbinical writing, the memra was the means by which God took on the visible form. And the same is true of the logos. This is the, that's the connection. Yeshua was, or Jesus was, the visible manifestation of God's presence. Now what does all this mean? Um, there's a few things that's uh, really important. That First of all, the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's one book, um, is, it's, just, it's just weaved through. God's progressive revelation weaves everything through re- a lot more tighter than we even know. Uh, and this is the kind of, um, the kind of um, uh, topic that shows that. So first of all, Christ is the very God of creation. He's the creator. Uh, there are certain cults that downgrade him to a god. As a matter of fact, when I was driving in Brooklyn, if you go over the Brooklyn Bridge, I'm not going to mention the name, but they have a, a building there. It's called the Watchtower, and I'm not going to ma- mention the name of the group. But and so they claim that this was um, that the Trinity was an added heresy <clears throat> after the time of Constantine. But that's not true. What we see is the revelation of the deity of the Word, who became fle- flesh 
predates the church, and it's not a corruption of the doctrine, but it's a, a revelation of truth which God progressively revealed in the Old Testament and more fully revealed in the New Testament. Right? So that's the first thing. So if, I, so if they say, well, this, this is something new, no, not at all. It, it, not at all. It goes back to the time of the rabbis, even before Christ. Uh, it also means that as fully God, Jesus is worthy of adoration. He's worthy of worship. Um, we're supposed to pray to the Father, you know, to the Father in Jesus' name is the formula in the New Testament. But he is God. He is uh, the fullness of deity dwells in him. Um, the other thing is, is that the plurality of God is so important. The triunity uh, demonstrates the perfection within the one God. Uh, God is love. You know something? This is how God, there's only one God. God is perfect. Is God relational? Is God meaning? Does He have relationship in Him already, or is it that as soon as God created His first angel, He had a relationship? Well, no, it can't be. It's impossible. His first creation, whatever, you know, the first cherub He created, He has somebody to talk to. That's important because uh, because God's perfection means that He had to be some kind of trinity, some kind of plurality within the one God. Um, love. Love is meaningless unless, unless there's a love-er and a love-e. Well, in the Trinity, you have three persons who loved each other from eternity. Love wasn't something new. When God created the world and created angels and created people, he said, wow, I'm going to lavish my love on them. His love was already between the, th the three members of the Trinity. So it's important for theology, for understanding of God. And also, it's the implication we're, being, we're made in God's image, and so we're meant for fellowship with one another. There are no lone wolf Christians. I, I speak to a lot of people, a lot of times they'll say, I worship God in nature. I say, okay, good, continue to do that. You know, I'm the meaning that they, they love God through nature. You know, they, they're not worshiping nature. So I, that's great, but the whole idea is we're supposed to be in, in fellowship with one another. And, uh, and uh, with, with all the wranglings and everything, people think, oh, I want the first century church. So I don't go to church now because I want a first century church uh, because it was so, so close and wonderful. And I say, listen, read the book of Revelation, man. They were, they were having a lot of strives all over the place. There were a lot of striving. There was a lot of um, uh, problems in the first century church also. It was not a bed of roses. You have humans. You have fallen humans. Uh, you, you're you're going to have tensions. And so we belong... Uh, as in fellowship with one another. The third thing it means is that uh, the skin in the game. When the word became flesh, God breached the enemy's realm. He breached the enemy's territory. The universe became Satan's realm through the fall. And the incarnation began the actual recapturing of his creation. And it wasn't just a theoretical thing. It was skin in the game, literally skin in the game. Uh, Jesus was incarnate. He became part of the creation and then he died and was resurrected, and forgiveness is proclaimed in his name. So uh, this is a, a tight uh, uh, connection between God and creation since Jesus became flesh. Um, again, we have to go back uh, to the foundation, uh, foundational kind of teaching. We find this in Genesis that I mentioned before. Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In the same way, the Targumim were right on when they understood. Abraham believed in the memory of the Lord, and it was credited to him uh, as righteousness. So we have to reach out to Jesus in faith in order to be righteous before God, in order for our sins to be forgiven and, uh, and walk uh, uh, with God in that way. Uh, thank you for your time. Again, if you, uh, we're going to be leaving at 12.15 or so, so if you have any questions, please feel free to ask. Uh, we have uh, sign-up sheets back there. and. Uh, 
and uh, newsletters. And so uh, I appreciate the time, and uh, thank you so much.